TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Welcome to The Permanent Record. I'm Josh Spickler, Executive Director of Just City. We're a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization based in Memphis, Tennessee. And The Permanent Record is our podcast about the criminal justice system and how we can work together to make it work better for everyone. The best and most effective way to improve a criminal justice system is to do so at the local level. That means local criminal justice stakeholders must act. Local elected officials like mayors, sheriffs, DAs, public defenders, judges, even court clerks must be ready to take bold action to keep our communities safe, but also provide fair and equal justice for everyone. Criminal justice reform is a largely local issue, and it needs local leaders to get it done. For this episode, we spoke to Mayor Karen Freeman Wilson. Mayor Freeman Wilson has been the mayor of Gary, Indiana since 2012. Before that, she served as Attorney General for the state of Indiana, City Court Judge in Gary, and in leadership for two national drug court support and advocacy organizations. She's a graduate of Harvard College and is the first African-American female mayor in Indiana history. Mayor Freeman Wilson also co-chairs the Committee on Criminal and Social Justice for the U.S. Conference of Mayors, and she helped produce the section uh, about criminal justice for the Mayor's Agenda entitled Leadership for America, Mayor's Agenda for the Future. She joined us on a chilly morning from City Hall in Gary, Indiana. Well, thank you very much, Mayor Freeman Wilson, for joining us on the permanent record from your office at City Hall in Gary, Indiana. Can you get us started by telling us poor Southerners where Gary, Indiana is? Well, Gary, Indiana is at the southern tip of Lake Michigan, just around the bend from Chicago. So it is actually in the greater Chicago area. In fact, we're less than 30 miles from downtown Chicago. All right. So good and chilly this time of year already, right? Oh, it is. It absolutely is. But we can't really complain because we did have a mild winter up until this point. Yeah. So Gary has, uh, over the last few decades, as I did my research, uh, suffered some population loss. Tell us a little bit about its history, why that happened, what what Gary's known for, and uh, what its position in, in the Midwest So Gary was a city that was created to house the um, Midwest operation of U.S. Steel. So it was literally a town built by U.S. Steel, and because of the growth of steel, because of the exponential growth of the city of Gary in the 20s and 30s, it was dubbed the Magic City because of the exponential growth. However, when the steel and related industries contracted in the 60s and early 70s, when um, automation became better and and the manufacturing process became much more efficient, Gary, uh, the U.S. steel plant in Gary went from employing 25,000 people at its height to employing less than 4,000 people today. Wow. And so we saw a population decline that really accompanied that reduction in employment uh, from at our height as a city, we had about 190,000 people 
today we have uh, about 80,000 people. And so there has been a, um, a significant reduction in population. And that reduction has really occurred as a result of a disorderly departure. What I mean for, by that is that people just left. They lost their jobs. Yeah. They left their homes. They lost their homes. Um, and they just left so that they could look for employment in other communities. And so we have the result of that disorderly yeah. departure still because it's a high vacancy rate. And you were you were born in Gary, correct? This is home. I yeah. was born in Gary, have lived here uh, most of my life with the exception of time that I spent working in Indianapolis and Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. So tell us what it's like growing up to experience what you just described as a city. I mean, I'm sure you have story after story of how this affects someone personally as a young person growing up uh, during that time. What, what, what was that like? Well, growing up, uh, Gary was a vibrant community. The downtown was bustling. Um, you know, Gary was always the the center of commerce for the northwest Indiana area. It was also the center of culture. We had um, a, a large amount of plays and, and other related culture and the center of um, education. In fact, people came from all around the country to uh, observe Gary's work, learn, and play system. And so when you saw the reduction of population and, and the resulting decline, um, the increase in crime, the increase in poverty, it was um, really disheartening yeah. to see that as a young person, to go from having a choice of theaters in the city to not having any theaters in the city, to go from having a choice of hotels in the city to not having any hotels in the city, and to see the crime rate increase because of the um, impact of this um, economic decline was uh, was very devastating. Right, and that, that raises a, the, the point that I want to spend a little time. We could talk about a lot of, of the similarities between Gary and Memphis, but the description you just gave us of Gary could could be used in many ways to describe the trajectory of, of my hometown, Memphis, over the you know, the last few decades as well. Um, you know, we, our crime has gone down as has crime across the country, but we trail uh, other areas in this state and the country in, in, in the amount uh, of that reduction. And so I would, I would assume Gary is probably similar. And in your role in the U.S. Conference of Mayors, uh, drafting um, the, their agenda for the future, uh, you, you said in that uh, report, in 2016, mayors were hopeful that Congress had started to find consensus sorry, around criminal justice reforms that would make the system fairer, smarter, and more cost-effective while keeping our communities safe and secure. Uh, and then you guys add that that emerging consensus seems to have fallen by the wayside as, quote, law and order rhetoric and emphasis on increased penalties and longer incarcerations have once again taken root. So what does that mean? What, what evidence do you see from, uh, from Gary, Indiana, as, as the mayor, uh, that the local government's wishes and law enforcement agencies are, are not in sync with the federal government? What, what does that mean locally? Well, what it means locally is that there was a movement really in 2016 throughout, um, and well, even 2015 throughout the country in Congress, at state, at many of our state legislatures, 
to really look at our criminal justice system and to engage in meaningful criminal justice reform around expungement, around sentencing, around um, many of those things that we began to understand that you cannot arrest your way out of a uh, of a problem of crime and simply putting people in jail do, does not make communities safer. There's no question that there are some people who need to be uh, in jail for a very long time, who need to be incarcerated for a very long time, but that really is not the majority of people. And I think that certainly mayors understood that first, but it was also something that state legislators around the country, as well as members of Congress, were beginning to understand. And so you saw comprehensive criminal justice reform being proposed in both our U.S. Senate and our House of Representatives. And then um, we saw an attorney general come into office who brought all of that to a screeching halt when he said that um, he was going to be tough on crime and that he was um, instructing U.S. attorneys to charge at the maximum level. And it was really disheartening, and it was so inconsistent with the evidence, um, with evidence-based practices that we understood to be true. Um, because all you do is spend an inordinate amount of money incarcerating folks who certainly need to be held accountable, but also need to be rehabilitated. Yeah, you're, you're, you're speaking my language. And so, um, you know, what you've done is, I think, laid out a very compelling case that criminal justice reform is important locally more than anything. And, and the list of public officials that you, you gave us, you know, are all, you know, local. Even a congressman, you know, only represents a few thousand people. Um, and, but you're a mayor uh, and you, uh, you know, sit in a unique place in, in this conversation. What, what, what about mayors makes them uniquely positioned uh, to lead right now? We believe that mayors are uniquely positioned to lead because we are closest to the people. We talk to them every day, and we can't, um, nor would we try to, but we certainly don't even have the luxury of escaping the people because we see them in <laughs> you may our want to grocery sometimes. stores, dry cleaners. We see them, uh, you know, I uh, tell a story about going to our local pool and being in the locker room and being inundated every week with um, the concern of the day. And, you know, sometimes I'm fully clothed, but most times <laughs> I'm partially clothed. But that doesn't stop people from telling you what's on their mind. The constituents must be heard, huh? <laughs> yes, they must be. Even in the locker room. <laughs> <laughs> Even in the locker room. So you're the co-chair of the Conference of Mayors Committee on Criminal and Social Justice. Um, what drew you to that? I mean, I, I hear you, you speaking about criminal justice in a way that, that, that to me sounds very informed, as if you've, uh, you know, this is not new to you. But so what about your prefer, your personal professional background uh, makes you qualified to lead that particular uh, area? Well, I've been fortunate enough 
to see this issue from a variety of perspectives. First, as a deputy prosecutor here in Lake County that has um, a lot of activity, and then as the attorney general for the state of Indiana, as well as as a uh, municipal judge, and then to have uh, worked in, in concert for the last 10 to 20 years with drug treatment court, that has also been an enlightening perspective because, you know, I would argue that drug treatment courts are probably one, among the most innovative creations in the justice system that has uh, occurred over the last 25 years. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. Tell us why do you, why you think that. Uh, and so just, just as a bit of background, I, I worked in a treatment court, so maybe I can give a 30-second a, a background. This is a court that offers more than simply a traditional um, punishment or, or probation or rehabilitation option. It offers the treatment for the substance abuse uh, or in, in mental health court, the mental health treatment, or in veterans court, you know, housing and other veterans issues, offers those resources in addition to uh, deciding guilt or innocence and deciding punishments. Uh, and drug court in particular addresses addiction. So uh, tell us, uh, you know, then why you feel that's such a unique, uh, unique thing and why that's such a great opportunity and, and maybe some of, of your work in that area. Well, it, it's unique and it's significant because it addresses underlying issues. So often uh, in our society's efforts to address problems, whether it's in the educational arena, whether it is in the um, arena of drug treatment, or whether it's even in the arena of uh, working towards developing our communities, we look at the surface. In drug treatment court, we look at the underlying issues um, of individuals who are addicted to alcohol and other drugs and who find themselves in the criminal justice system largely, but in the family court system, in other aspects of the judicial system, and we are often able to identify that it is not only addiction to alcohol and other drugs, but some other mental health disorder that has um, lent itself or at least facilitated their involvement in the criminal justice system. And to the extent that that's true, we address the need for treatment for treatment to alcohol and other drugs, for treatment for mental health issues, but we also address those other ancillary issues, whether it is the lack of education, the uh, issue for homelessness, and then we require accountability. And so a person in a drug treatment court has to test three times a week. And so it's one thing to say that you can't use drugs, but it's a totally different thing to say you can't use drugs and we're going to test to see if you're using them or not. And we're also going to provide 
support for you not to use drugs, uh, the counseling that you need, the inpatient treatment if that's required. Uh, we're going to assess to see what is the best treatment regimen because we are committed to your long-term recovery because we understand that if you don't come back into the criminal justice system through that revolving door that we've seen so many come through, it is not only better for you and your family, but it's better for us as a society because we're spending less money. Sure, sure. Let me play devil's advocate then for a second. What do you say as a criminal defense attorney, which is what I am and I, as, you know, as a defense attorney worked in that, in that drug court, what do you say to someone like me who says, yeah, but in order to access everything that you just described, which is certainly uh, the thing we need to be giving people and the thing that's going to make our communities healthier and safer, what do you say about the fact that this is still happening within the criminal justice system and that there are very important rights that must be respected, and t- including rights to have your case heard and to, uh, you know, to confront witnesses against you, and that in, in many cases, and it, it was my experience, frankly, that in a lot of uh, my clients' cases, they were asked to surrender all that at a very early opportunity. How, how do you balance the need to do all the things you described with the need to, pr- to protect the adversarial system in a specialty court? So as someone who spent um, upwards of, of seven years as, as a public defender and about 20 years as a defense attorney generally, I would say that we have a duty to um, assist our clients in the uh, way that they need help possible, uh, in the best way that they need help. And in many instances, it is to um, argue a procedural challenge uh, or to make a procedural challenge to a shaky probable cause affidavit, to a shaky arrest, to uh, something that may be wrong with the underlying charge. But also we find even um, in those cases where there may be an underlying challenge that's appropriate that we are confronted with someone who is addicted to alcohol or other drugs. And what I've found with my clients is when they have a problem, they acknowledge them more often than not. I mean, you know, there are people who are in denial. There are folks who have decided, you know, I'm just going to – uh, do what 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 I need to do to to address the habit that I have, but to the extent that people are willing to acknowledge their addiction, and sometimes that comes through the help of family members. That then I would say that even as a defense attorney, we have a responsibility to um, lead them to and to assist them in getting the best intervention that is available to them in in the criminal justice system. I would also argue that a person should not have to commit a crime to right. get access to treatment. Right. I and um agree and, and that's you know, you know, so there's a spectrum I would say that uh should be available in our communities, both in and out of the judicial system. And I I think that being involved in a drug treatment court, particularly one that um, adheres to the 10 key components and um, making sure that a person has access to uh, the full range of, of uh, procedures and, and uh, due process are not mutually exclusive. But, you know, I think the key is a, 
is making sure that the court that a person is in and a court that you're um, promoting in your uh, lo- in your county, whether it's a county court or a city court, is in fact adhering to the key ki- ten key components, and that's something that we really work to do through the National Association of Drug Court Professionals. Yeah, yeah, got it. Uh, and I think to your point, we're, when we get to the criminal justice system, when we get to a drug court, no matter how well run and how well it adheres to those principles, it is really still. Uh, some percentage more expensive to provide this type of care that were we to do it on the front end before someone comes in contact with the criminal justice system it would be so much more affordable and so much more sensible uh, to, to provide adequate resources in the community for people struggling and you know with addiction just as an example but uh, and that's you know one of our big arguments with just city is quit using the criminal justice system to treat these social problems that are so much more affordably treated and so much more uh, adequately treated uh, before that anyway um, so I would I would agree with you, but the only caveat I would add is that once you get into the criminal justice system, it is much cheaper to mm-hmm. provide treatment through drug court than to incarcerate someone. Of course, of course, yeah. absolutely. It's uh, incarceration is the most expensive thing our governments uh, do. I don't have to tell you that. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah. talk to me a little about um, you know. Is the in the conference of mayors and and when you have to write a a report and I would encourage we'll post a, a link to the report um, on our website and I would encourage folks listening to go read it. But how do you build consensus uh, among a membership that is so vast and so varied uh, in demographics and size and economic trajectories? How do you build a consensus with mayors across the country and 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 you know maybe talk a little bit about what Gary uh, has in common with big cities like Chicago just up the road from you and and medium sized cities like Memphis uh, down. South. What do you have in common, and how, what does that process look like of building consensus? As vast and varied as our cities and, and our mayors and our communities are, there are certain things that are consistent. We all want to provide the safest community possible for our cities. We all understand how important public safety is to the quality of life that our citizens enjoy. We all understand that it's important to build a community where the um, members of our law enforcement community and uh, the citizens that they serve uh, have a rapport. They trust each other. They know each other. And so to the extent that there are those commonalities, then we focus and we work on providing that framework so that we can provide the training, so that we can provide the technical assistance, so that we can advocate for the support at the federal, state, and local level to really advance those common principles in our communities. We understand the the importance of technology and how technology is really um, a, a a support. You know, body cameras don't solve anything in and of themselves. Body cameras are a tool that uh, we su- suggest should be available, and but there is a process of making that tool available. And all communities uh, don't have the luxury of having In the city of Gary, we can't afford body cameras without the support of the federal government. So we don't have them. But we also understand some of the underlying uh, principles of transparency, of uh, creating uh, police community and trust 
in a way that um, even without body cameras, there is a rapport that you want between your police department and your community. Yeah, and what have you done in Gary to help encourage that and to help strengthen that bond between the communities and that they police and the police? Well, we've been we've had the good fortune of being involved in the national initiative to promote um, police and community trust. And, and of course, that is with the support of the Department of Justice and uh, Yale University and the Urban Institute and a number of other organizations. So every officer in our department has been trained in implicit bias. Um, our officers uh, aren't just... Um, we don't just have community police officers. Every officer in our department is trained in community policing. They're all encouraged to be involved in the community, but also they are consistently in the community, whether it's in community forums, whether it's doing um, the annual Shop with a Cop event that is coming up this Saturday, whether it is also engaging in the um, events that, um, like National Night Out, where our police department leads that event in, in the community where folks come uh, to local parks and interact with officers, interact with our canine unit, and understand the the work that we have together, or whether it's being engaged in block clubs telling them, here's how you can help our department to serve you better. All of those things happen on a daily basis in the Gary Police Department. Cool. Well, the, that's a... That's a, a primer on community policing. Thank you for that. And I, I, I know we're running out of time. I want to ask you about a couple more things if I can. Um, you mentioned this earlier, and, and as a, <laughs> as an expungement, uh, uh, sort of local expungement expert at least, and, and an organization at Just City, we're sort of known for our uh, our work helping people get clean slates after contact with the criminal justice system. I have uh, you know come to uh, study Indiana a little bit, and, and it did some comprehensive uh, reform in this area. And I'm wondering how familiar you are with that, and if you could give us just a, an example or an overview of the of expungement in Indiana. Well, I am familiar. I'm familiar with what it used to look like, and I'm familiar with what it looks like now. Yeah. Um, previously in Indiana you could only have your record or an arrest um, expunged under uh, very narrow circumstances, which made it virtually impossible to get a record expunged. Now in Indiana, they acknowledge the fact that someone may have made a mistake uh, a long time ago during their youth or somebody might have been involved in an aberrant situation. And so what happens now is under the passage of time, under certain circumstances, you can, in fact, have um, most of the charges that you might be confronted with in Indiana expunged. Now, there are certain um, charges that cannot be expunged uh, under Indiana law, but there is a process that people can go through. There is a process that does not always uh, require an attorney because we know that it can be expensive if you're required to get counsel. And what I've found is that clerks 
offices throughout the state. And certainly I know this to be true because we work very closely with our Lake County clerk, Mike Brown, on this. Uh, But most clerk's offices help people with expungement cases. They don't practice law, but they make sure that courts are accessible. And through our um, Commission on the Status of Black Males, we have worked with local churches and our local bar association to have expungement fairs so that people can understand the process and that they are able to access that process here in the city of Gary. Sure. And, and without you know, asking you another question, I appreciate you taking so much time with us. I, I in my reading, have, have learned that the way that you guys did this was you brought everyone to the table, not just the advocates like yourself and the, and the clerks like you mentioned and the DAs who are obviously interested in this and the community advocates, but also businesses across Indiana who have an interest in knowing who, they're, who they're hiring. Yeah. And so um, kudos to Indiana. And, and that process, as I understand it, was led by a, a state lawmaker who was a former district attorney himself. Is that correct? It was, and and who was a Republican state lawmaker. And and I think that's significant because it was a bipartisan effort that involved uh, everyone in the community. And what we found is that we've been able to not only lead by example and hire people who have prior convictions here in the city of Gary, but to say to our business community, you know, this is something that uh, would will help you. And uh, what you'll find is you will not have a more committed um, employee than someone who has had a history and who has had a barrier to being employed. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you. Um, one, one final question, I promise. Uh, and, and I read this on Wikipedia, so it may or may not be true. Uh, <laughs> but you apparently were on an episode of Undercover Boss. Uh, tell us what you did and, and what that was what that was all about. I was. Um, last December, I was actually in the premiere episode of Undercover oh. Boss. And I have to tell you, I was very um, hesitant. I was very reluctant. But ultimately, um, when we made the decision to do the episode, and interestingly, I had never really seen Undercover Boss before uh, being involved, but um, I had the opportunity to work with our uh, a member of our fire department, uh, a member of our police department, uh, a member of our park department, and uh, we were emptying garbage cans on the beach at uh, at 90 degrees that Oof. day and a um and, and they don't know that they're with with the mayor is that correct is that the they premise? had no idea <laughs> i was literally in uh this wig and in these this outfit where they had no idea it was me i worked uh cleaned sewers Oof. with uh two members of our wastewater uh treatment plant and I tell you, it was um, not only a grueling experience uh, given the the conditions, but it also was very enlightening. And to a person, they were some of the hardest working people I've ever seen, not just in city government, anywhere, and uh, so dedicated to to their work. Well, that that's a that's a great story and a great way to end because I think we have a lot of those people in our city government as well, and. Um, Mayor Karen Freeman-Wilson from Gary, Indiana, thank you very much for joining us on The Permanent Record. Uh, I really appreciate it. 
Thank you so much. It, it is my honor. And thank you for the work that you do uh, to promote just cities and, and criminal justice um, in, in your community. All the best to you. Thank you very much. That was the 19th mayor of Gary, Indiana, Karen Freeman Wilson, in conversation and on the permanent record. Our thanks to Mayor Freeman Wilson and her team and Gary for working with us to make that happen. Special thanks to Carrie Hayes for connecting us with the mayor and her important work with the U.S. Conference of Mayors. You can read the mayor's agenda, including the very compelling section on the safety and security of our neighborhoods, at mayorsagenda.com. As always, thanks to Gil and Carla Worth at the OAM Network for their support of The Permanent Record and the podcasting community in Memphis. Check out some of the other fine shows they produce at theoamnetwork.com. Thanks to Jeff Hewlett for She Got Gone, original theme music for The Permanent Record. I've heard an upcoming album album version of that song, and you're going to like it. Plus, he's got more original material on that album. Watch for it soon. I'm Josh Spickler. This is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. Learn more about our work at JustCity.org. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at JustCity901. Make sure you subscribe to The Permanent Record somewhere, anywhere. Give us a rating wherever you subscribe. It helps build our audience. In a Just City, we listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both.